ladies and gentlemen. This is Simon Anthony and Torty Talks. Arthur is home and loving it. I wonder how long it'll last. In this instalment of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams, uh, we've got several things going on. Most of them are Arthur-based, but he does have a dalliance with a rain god and finds out why Fenny is so named. He felt strong. He felt healthy. He vigorously cleared away the junk mail with a spade and buried the cat. Just as he was finishing that, the phone went, but he let it ring while he maintained a moment's respectful silence. Whoever it was would ring back if it was that important. He kicked the mud off his shoes and went back inside. There had been a number of small significant letters in the piles of junk, some documents from the council dated three years earlier relating to the proposed demolition of his house, and some other letters about the setting up of a public inquiry into the whole bypass scheme in the area. There was also an old letter from Greenpeace, the ecological pressure group to which he had occasionally made contributions, asking for help with their scheme to release dolphins and orcas from captivity, and some postcards from friends vaguely complaining that he never got in touch with them these days. He collected these together and put them in a cardboard file which he marked things to do. Since he was feeling so vigorous and dynamic this morning he even added the word urgent. He unpacked his towel and another few odd bits and pieces from the plastic bag he had acquired at the Port Parasta Megamart. The slogan on the side was a clever and elaborate pun in lingua centuri, which was completely incomprehensible in any other language and therefore entirely pointless for a duty-free shop at a spaceport. The bag also had a hole in it, so he threw it away. He realised with a sudden twinge that something else must have dropped out of the small spacecraft that had brought him to Earth, kindly going out of its way to drop him right beside the A303. He'd lost his battered and space-worn copy of the thing which had helped him find his way across the unbelievable wastes of space he had traversed. He had lost the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Well, he told himself, this time I really won't be needing it again. He had some calls to make. He had decided how to deal with the mass of contradictions his return journey had precipitated, which was that he would simply brazen it out. He phoned the BBC and asked to be put through to his department head. Ah, oh, hello, Arthur Dent here. Look, I'm sorry I haven't been in for six months, but I've gone mad. Oh, not to worry. Thought it's probably something like that. Happens here all the time. <laughs> how soon can we expect you? When do hedgehogs stop hibernating? Sometime in spring, I think. I'll be in shortly after that. Righty ho. He flipped through the yellow pages and made a short list of numbers to try. Ah, hello. Is that the Old Elms Hospital? Yes. I was just phoning to see if I could have a word with uh, Fenella. Um, Fenella. Good Lord, silly me. I forget my own name next. Uh, Fenella. Isn't it ridiculous? Patient of yours. A dark-haired girl came in last night. I'm afraid we don't have any patients called Fenella. Oh, don't you? I mean Fiona. Of course, we just call her Fen. I'm sorry. Goodbye. Click. Six conversations along these lines began to take their toll on his mood of vigorous, dynamic optimism, and he decided before it deserted him entirely, he would take it down to the pub and parade it a little. He had had the perfect idea for explaining away every inexplicable 
inexplicable weirdness about himself at a stroke. And he whistled to himself as he pushed open the door which had so daunted him the last night. Arthur! He grinned cheerfully at the boggling eyes that stared at him from all corners of the pub and told them all what a wonderful time he'd had in Southern California. Chapter 9 he accepted another pint and took a pull at it. Of course, I had my own personal alchemist too. You what? He was getting silly and he knew it. Exuberance and Hall and Woodhouse Best Bitter was a mixture to be wary of, but one of the first effects it had is to stop you being wary of things, and the point at which Arthur should have thought and explained things no more was the point at which he started instead to get inventive. Oh, yes, he insisted with a happy, glazed smile. It's why I've lost so much weight. What? said his audience. Oh, yes, he said again. The Californians have rediscovered alchemy. Oh, yes, he smiled again. Only, he said, it's, uh, it's a much more useful form than the one which we... In, he paused thoughtfully to let a little grammar assemble in his head, in which the ancients used to practice it. Uh, or at least, he added, failed to practice it. Uh, they couldn't get it to work, you know. Nostradamus and that lot uh, couldn't cut it. Nostradamus, said one of his audience. I didn't think he was an alchemist, said another. I thought, said a third, he was a seer. He became a seer, said Arthur to his audience, the component parts of which were beginning to bob and blur a little, because he was such a lousy alchemist. <laughs> you should know that. He took another pull at his beer. It was something he had not tasted for eight years. He tasted it and tasted it. What has alchemy got to do, asked a bit of the audience, with losing weight? I'm glad you asked that, said Arthur. Very glad. And I will now tell you what the connection is between, he paused, between those two things, the uh, things you mentioned. Uh, I'll, uh, I'll tell you. He paused and manoeuvred his thoughts. It was like watching oil tankers doing three-point turns of the English Channel. They discovered how to turn excess body fat into gold, he said, in a sudden blur of coherence. You're kidding. Oh, yes, he said. No, no he corrected himself. They have, um, he rounded on the doubting part of his audience, which was all of it, and so took a little while to round on it completely. Have you been to California? He demanded. Do you know the sort of stuff they do there? Three members of his audience said they had, and he was talking nonsense. You haven't seen anything, insisted Arthur. Oh, yes, he added, because someone was offering to buy him another round. The evidence, he said, pointing at himself and not missing by more than a couple of inches, is before your eyes. Fourteen hours in a trance, he said. In a tank, in a trance. I was in a tank, I, th I think, he added after a thought was, I think I already said that. He waited patiently while the next round was duly distributed. He composed the next bit of his story in his mind, which was going to be something about the tank, needing to be orientated along a line dropped perpendicularly from the pole star to a baseline drawn between Mars and Venus, and was about to start trying to say it when he decided to give it a miss. Long time, he said instead, in a tank, in a trance. He looked round severely at his audience to make sure it was all following attentively. He resumed. Where was I? he said. In a trance, said one. In a tank, said another. Oh, yes, said Arthur. Thank you. And slowly, he said, pushing onwards, slowly, slowly, all your excess fat turns to, uh, he paused for a sect, sub-ku, uh, sub-you, sub-co, he paused for breath, subcutaneous gold, which you can have surgically removed. Getting out of the tank is hell. 
What did you say? I was just clearing my throat. I think you doubt me. I was clearing my throat. She was clearing her throat, confirmed a significant part of the audience in a low rumble. Oh, yes, said Arthur. All right. And and, and then you uh, split the proceeds. He paused again for a maths break. Uh, 50-50 with the alchemist. Make a lot of money. He looked swayingly around at his audience and couldn't help but be aware of an air of scepticism about their jumbled faces. He felt very affronted by this. How else, he demanded, could I afford to have my face dropped? Friendly arms began to help him home. Listen, he protested as the cold February breeze brushed his face. Looking lived in is all the rage in California at the moment. You've got to look as if you've seen the galaxy. Uh, life, I mean. You've got to look as if you've seen life. That's what I've got. A face drop. Give me eight years, I said. I hope being 30 doesn't come back into fashion or I've wasted a lot of money. He lapsed into silence for a while as the friendly arms continued to help him along the lane to his house. Got in yesterday, he mumbled. I'm very happy to be home or somewhere very like it. Jet lag, muttered one of his friends. Long trip from California. Really mucks you about for a couple of days. I don't think he's been there at all, muttered another. I wonder where he has been and what happened to him. After a little sleep, Arthur got up and pottered around the house a bit. He felt woozy and a little low, still disorientated by the journey. He wondered how he was going to find Fanny. He sat and looked at the fishbowl. He tapped it again, and despite being full of water, the small yellow babel fish, which was gulping its way around rather dejectedly in it, still chimed its deep and resonant chime as clearly and mesmerically as before. Someone is trying to thank me, he thought to himself. He wondered who, and for what. Chapter 10 at the third stroke, it'll be one, thirty-two, and twenty seconds. Beep, beep, beep. Full Prefect suppressed the little giggle of evil satisfaction, realised that he had no reason to suppress it, and laughed out loud. A wicked laugh. He switched the incoming signal through the sub-Ethernet to the ship's hi-fi system. The odd, rather stilted sing-song voice spoke out with remarkable clarity around the cabin. At the third stroke, it will be one, thirty-two and thirty seconds. Beep, beep, beep. He tweaked the volume up just a little while keeping a careful eye on a rapidly changing table of figures on the ship's computer display. For the length of time he had in mind, the question of power consumption became significant. He didn't want a murder on his conscience. At the third stroke, it'll be one, thirty-two and forty seconds. Beep, beep, beep. He checked around the small ship and walked down the short corridor. At the third stroke, he stuck his head into the small, functional, gleaming steel bathroom. It will be... It sounded fine in there. He looked into the tiny sleeping quarters. One, thirty-two. It sounded a bit muffled. There was a towel hanging over one of the speakers. He took down the towel. And fifty seconds. Fine. He checked out the packed cargo hold. He wasn't at all satisfied with the sound. There was altogether too much crated junk in the way. He stepped back out and waited for the door to seal. He broke open a closed control panel and pushed the jettison button. He didn't know why he hadn't thought of that before. A whooshing, rumbling noise died away quickly into silence. After a pause, a slight hiss could be heard again. It stopped. 
He waited for the green light to show and then opened the door again on the now empty cargo hold. One thirty-three and fifty seconds. Very nice. Beep, beep, beep. Then he went and had a last thorough examination of the emergency suspended animation chamber, which was where he particularly wanted it to be heard. At the third stroke, it would be one thirty-four precisely. He shivered as he peered down through the heavy frosted covering at the dim bulk of the form within. One day, who knew when, it would awake, and when it did, he would know what time it was. Not exactly local time, true, but what the heck. He double-checked the computer display above the freezer bed, dimmed the lights, and checked it again. At the third stroke, it will be. He tiptoed out and returned to the control cabin. One thirty-four and twenty seconds. The voice sounded as clear as if he was hearing it over a phone in London, which he wasn't, not by a long way. He gazed out into the inky night. The star, the size of a brilliant biscuit crumb, he could see in the distance, was Zondostina. Or as it was known in the world from which the rather stilted sing-song voice was being received, Pleiades Zeta. The bright orange curve that filled over half the visible area was the giant gas planet Cerceros Magna, where the Saxassian battleships docked. And just rising over the horizon was the small, cool blue moon, Epon. At the third stroke, it will be. For twenty minutes, he sat and watched as the gap between the ship and Epon closed, as the ship's computer teased and kneaded the numbers that would bring it into a loop around the little moon, close the loop and keep it there, orbiting in perpetual obscurity. One fifty-nine. His original plan had been to close down all external signalling and radiation from the ship, to render it as nearly invisible as possible, unless you were actually looking at it. But then he had the idea he preferred. He would now emit one single continuous beam, pencil thin, broadcasting the incoming time signal to the planet of the signal's origin, which it would not reach for a four hundred years, travelling at light speed, but where it would probably cause something of a stir when it did. Beep, beep. Beep. He sniggered. He didn't like to think of himself as the sort of person who giggled or sniggered, but he had to admit that he had been giggling and sniggering almost continuously for well over half an hour now. At the third stroke, the ship was now locked almost perfectly into its perpetual orbit round a little-known and never-visited moon. Almost perfect. Only one thing remained. He ran again the computer simulation of the launching of the little ship's escapeo buggy, balancing actions, reactions, tangential forces, all the mathematical poetry of motion, and saw that it was good. Before he left, he turned out the lights. As the little cigar tube of an escape craft zipped out on the beginning of its three-day journey to the orbiting space station Port Cesafron, it rode for a few seconds along a pencil-thin beam of radiation, and it was starting out on a longer journey still. At the third stroke, it will be two thirteen and fifty seconds. He giggled and sniggered. He would have laughed out loud, but he didn't have the room. Beep, beep, beep. Chapter eleven. April showers, I hate especially. However, non-committally, Arthur grunted. The man seemed determined to talk to him. He wondered if he could get up and move to another table. There didn't seem to be one free in the whole cafeteria. He stirred his coffee fiercely. Bloody April showers! Hate, hate, hate! 
Arthur stared, frowning out of the window. A light, sunny spray of rain hung over the motorway. Two months he'd been back now, slipping back into his old life had in fact been laughably easy. People had such extraordinarily short memories, including him. Eight years of crazed wanderings around the galaxy now seemed to him not so much like a bad dream as like a film he had videotaped from the TV and now kept in the back of a cupboard without bothering to watch. One effect that still lingered, though, was his joy at being back. Now that the Earth's atmosphere had closed over his head for good, he thought, wrongly, everything within it gave him extraordinary pleasure. Looking at the silvery sparkle of the raindrops, he felt he had to protest. Well, I like them, he said suddenly. And for all the obvious reasons, they're light and refreshing, they sparkle and make you feel good. The man snorted derisively. That's what they all say, he said, and glowered darkly from his corner seat. He was a lorry driver. Arthur knew this because his opening unprovoked mark had been, I'm a lorry driver. I hate driving in the rain. Ironic, isn't it? Bloody ironic. If there was a sequitur hidden in this remark, Arthur had not been able to divine it and had merely given a little grunt, affable but not encouraging. But the man had not been deterred then and was not to be deterred now. They all say that about bloody April showers, he said. So bloody nice, so bloody refreshing, such charming bloody weather. He leaned forward, screwed his face up as if he was going to say something about the government. What I want to know is this, he said. If it's going to be a nice weather, why, he almost spat, can't it be nice without bloody raining? Arthur gave up. He decided to leave his coffee, which was too hot to drink quickly and too nasty to drink cold. Well, there you go, he said, and instead got up himself. Bye. He stopped off at the service station shop, then walked back through the car park, making a point of enjoying the fine play of rain on his face. There was even, he noticed, a faint rainbow glistening over the Devon Hills. He enjoyed that too. He climbed into his battered but adored old black Golf GTI, squealed the tyres and headed out past the islands of petrol pumps and onto the slip road back towards the motorway. He was wrong in thinking that the atmosphere of the earth had closed finally and forever above his head. He was wrong to think that it would ever be possible to put behind him the tangled web of irresolutions into which his galactic travels had dragged him. He was wrong to think he could now forget that that big, hard, oily, dirty rainbow hung earth on which he lived was a microscopic dot on a microscopic dot lost in the unimaginable infinity of the universe. He drove on, humming, being wrong about all these things. The reason he was wrong was standing by the slip road under a small umbrella. His jaw sagged. He sprained his ankle against the brake pedal and skidded so hard that he nearly turned the car over. Fanny, he shouted. Having narrowly avoided hitting her with the actual car, he hit her instead with the car door as he leant across and flung it open at her. He caught her hand and knocked away her umbrella, which then blowed wildly across the road. Shit! yelled Arthur, as helpfully as he could, and leapt out of his own door, narrowly avoided being run down by McKenna's all-weather haulage, and watched in horror as it ran down Fenny's umbrella instead. The lorries swept along the motorway and away.
The umbrella lay like a recently swatted daddy long legs, expiring sadly on the ground. Tiny gusts of wind made it twitch a little. He picked it up. Uh, he said, it didn't seem to be a lot of point in offering the thing back to her. How did you know my name? She said. Uh, well, he said, look, I'll get you another one. He looked at her and tailed off. She was tallish, with dark hair, which fell in waves around a pale and serious face. Standing still, alone, she seemed almost sombre, like a statue to some important but unpopular virtue in a formal garden. She seemed to be looking at something other than what she looked as if she was looking at. But when she smiled, as she did now, it was as if she suddenly arrived from somewhere. Warmth and life flooded into her face, an impossibly graceful movement into her body. The effect was very disconcerting, and it disconcerted Arthur like hell. She grinned, tossed her bag into the back, and swivelled herself into the front seat. Don't worry about the umbrella, she said to him as she climbed in. It was my brother's, and he can't have liked it, or he wouldn't have given it to me. She laughed and pulled on her seatbelt. You're not a friend of my brother's, are you? No. Her voice was the only part of her which didn't say good. Her physical presence there in the car, his car, was quite extraordinary to Arthur. He felt, as he let the car pull slowly away, that he could hardly think or breathe, and hoped that neither of these functions were vital to his driving, or they were in trouble. So, what he had experienced in the other car, her brother's car, the night he had returned exhausted and bewildered from his nightmare in years in the stars, had not been the unbalance of the moment, or, if it had been, he was at least twice as unbalanced now, and quite liable to fall off whatever it was well-balanced people are supposed to be balancing on. So, he said, hoping to kick the conversation off into an exciting start. He was meant to pick me up, my brother, but phoned to say he couldn't make it. I asked about buses, but the man started to look at the calendar rather than a timetable, so I decided to hitch. So here I am. And what I'd like to know is how you know my name. Perhaps we ought to first sort out, said Arthur, looking back over his shoulder as he eased his car into the motorway traffic, where I'm taking you. Very close, he hoped, or long away. Close would mean she lived near him. A long way would mean he could drive her there. I'd like to go to Taunton, she said. Please, if it's all right, it's, it's not far. You can drop me at... You live in Taunton, he said, hoping that he'd managed to sound merely curious rather than ecstatic. Taunton was wonderfully close to him. He could... No, London, she said. There's a train in just under an hour. It was the worst possible thing. Taunton was only minutes up the motorway. He wondered what to do, and while he was wondering with horror, heard himself, Oh, I can take you to London. Let me take you to London. Bungling idiot. Why on earth had he said let in that stupid way? He was behaving like a twelve-year-old. Are you going to London? she asked. I wasn't, he said, but bungling idiot. It's very kind of you, she said, but really no. I like to go by train. And suddenly she was gone. Rather, the part of her which brought her to life was gone. She looked rather distantly out of the window and hummed lightly to herself. He couldn't believe it. Thirty seconds into the conversation, he'd already blown it. Grown men, he told himself, in flat contradiction of centuries of accumulated evidence about the way grown men behave, do not behave like this. Taunton, five miles, said the signpost. 
He gripped the steering wheel so tightly the car wobbled. He was going to have to do something dramatic. Fenny, he said. She glanced round sharply at him. You still haven't told me how... Listen, said Arthur. I will tell you, though the story is rather strange. Very strange. She was still looking at him, but said nothing. Listen, you said that. Did I? Oh, uh, there are things I must talk to you about, are things I must tell you. A, a story I must tell you which would... Uh, he was thrashing about. He wanted something along the lines of Thy knotted and combed locks to part and each particular quill to stand on end like quills upon the fretful porpentine. But he didn't think he could carry it off and didn't like the hedgehog reference. Which would take more than five miles. He settled for the end rather lamely, he was afraid. Well... Just supposing, he said, just supposing, he didn't know what was coming next, so he thought he'd just sit back and listen, that there was some extraordinary way in which you were very important to me, and that, though you didn't know it, I was very important to you, that it all went for nothing because we had been five miles and I was a stupid idiot at knowing how to say something very important to someone I've only just met and not crash into lorries at the same time. What would you say, he paused helplessly looking at her, I should do. Watch the road, she yelled. Shit! He narrowly avoided careering into the side of a hundred Italian washing machines and a German lorry. I think, she said with a momentary sigh of relief, you should buy me a drink before my train goes. There is, for some reason, something especially grim about pubs near stations. A very particular kind of grubbiness, a special kind of pallor to the pork pies. Worse than the pork pies, though, are the sandwiches. There is a feeling which persists in England that making a sandwich interesting, attractive, or in any way pleasant to eat is something sinful only foreigners do. Make them dry is the instruction buried somewhere in the collective national consciousness. Make them rubbery. If you have to keep the buggers fresh, do it by washing them once a week. It is by eating sandwiches in pubs on Saturday lunchtimes that the British seek to atone for whatever their national sins have been. They're not altogether clear what those sins are and don't want to know either. Sins are not the sort of things one wants to know about, but whatever their sins are, they're simply atoned for by the sandwiches they make themselves eat. If there is anything worse than the sandwiches, it is the sausages which sit next to them joyless tubes full of gristle floating in a sea of something hot and sad with a plastic pin in the shape of a chef's hat a memorial one feels for some chef who hated the world and died forgotten and alone among his cats on a back stair in stepney the sausages are for the ones who know what their sins are and wish to return for something specific there must be something better said arthur no time said fanny glancing at her watch my train leaves in half an hour they sat at a small wobbly table on it were some dirty glasses and some soggy beer mats with jokes printed on them arthur got fanny a tomato juice and himself a pint of yellow water with gas in it and a couple of sausages he didn't know why he bought them for something to do while the gas settled in his glass the barman dunked Arthur's change in a pool of beer on the bar, for which Arthur thanked him. All right, all right, said Fanny, glancing at her watch. Tell me what it is you have to tell me. 
She sounded, as well she might, extremely sceptical, and Arthur's heart sank. Hardly he felt the most conducive setting to try to explain to her, as she sat there, suddenly cool and defensive, that in a sort of out-of-body dream he had, he had had a telepathic sense that the mental breakdown she had suffered had been connected with the fact that, appearances to the contrary, notwithstanding, the earth had been demolished to make way for a new hyperspace bypass, something which he alone on Earth knew anything about, uh, having virtually witnessed it from a Vogon spaceship, and that, furthermore, both his body and soul ached for her unbearably, and he needed to go to bed with her as soon as was humanly possible. I wonder if you'd like to buy some tickets for our raffle? It's just the little one, he glanced up sharply, to raise money for Angie, who's retiring. What? and needs a kidney machine. He was being lent over by a rather stiff, slim, middle-aged woman with a prim knitted suit and a prim little perm and a prim little smile that probably got licked by prim little dogs a lot. She was holding out a small book of cloakroom tickets and a collecting tin. Only ten pence each, she said, so you could probably even buy two without breaking the bank. She gave a tinkly little laugh and then a curiously long sigh, saying, without breaking the bank, had obviously given her more pleasure than anything since some G.I.s had been billeted on her in the war. Uh, uh, yes, all right, said Arthur, hurriedly digging in his pockets and producing a couple of coins. With infuriating slowness and prim theatricality, if there was such a thing, the woman tore off two tickets and handed them to Arthur. I do hope you win, she said. That was one in a series of Torty Talks by Simon Anthony, acting at torty.org.uk.